I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Michael Hiltzig. Michael Hiltzig is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author who has written about business, technology, and public policy for the Los Angeles Times for three decades. Currently the Times business columnist, Mr. Hiltzig has also served as a financial and political writer, an investigative reporter, and a foreign correspondent in Africa and Russia. His previous books include The Plot Against Social Security and A Death in Kenya, The Murder of Julia Ward. His latest book, as I just mentioned, is Colossus, Hoover Dam and the Making of the American Century. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Michael Hiltzig. Well, uh, thank you, Gregory, for that lovely introduction, and uh, thank you all for being here. Also, uh, I'd like to thank David and the staff of the Autry for making this uh, great facility available, and as, as David said, it is particularly uh, appropriate that we talk here uh, about water and the West, since the Autry has this initiative going on, but we are all here tonight for a celebration of one of the great expressions of American engineering know-how, and surely one of the most physically impressive and artistically beautiful, yet utilitarian structures anywhere in the world, Hoover Dam. But before I get too wrapped up in, in a transport of admiration for, uh, for this great work, I'd like to start down to earth with the help of a comment on the dam that came directly from the grassroots. This came from a man named Frank Romano Sr., who in May 1947 wrote a letter to his local newspaper, the Las Vegas Review Journal. Now, in, in that period, the country was involved for the third time in less than 20 years in a controversy over what to name the dam. Originally, it had been known simply as the Boulder Canyon Project because that's where it was originally going to be built in Boulder Canyon, even though it was actually built 20 miles downstream in a place called Black Canyon. Then in 1930, Interior Secretary Ray Wilbur came out to the Nevada desert for the project's groundbreaking. He drove a silver spike into a railroad spur that was going to serve the construction site, and he gave a little speech, at the end of which he suddenly announced, much to everybody's surprise, that he was taking it upon himself to name the dam after his good friend and his boss, that world-famous engineer, President Herbert Hoover. Now that didn't sit too well with a lot of people uh, who'd been involved in getting the dam uh, uh, built and who thought Hoover hadn't played all that positive a role in the effort. So sure enough, three years later, after taking office as President Roosevelt's Interior Secretary in 1933, Harold Ickes erased Hoover's name from the dam and rechristened it Boulder Dam because, as he said, well, it's in Boulder Canyon, so uh, it's appropriate. Of course, it, as I said, it wasn't in Boulder Canyon. <laughs> now, that didn't sit well with a lot of people who were still, well, Republicans. <laughs> but for Ickes, this was a, a little bit personal because Ickes was himself a Republican, and he hated Herbert Hoover so much so that he had sponsored a dump Hoover movement at the 1932 GOP convention, and it had only failed because the Republicans couldn't find anybody who wanted the job more than the president wanted re-election. So now we flash forward to 1947 and the first Republican majority Congress in 14 years. 
As one of their first acts in office, the GOP majority voted to put Hoover's name back on the dam. Well, the matter, once again, generated so much debate and so much confusion, Rand McNally complained that they were going to have to, they were going to, have to reprint all their maps. Pat McCarran, uh, then the senator from the state of Nevada, said, well, you know, all the businesses in Boulder City near the dam, they're going to have to get new stationery. Uh, citizens would say, well, what's Boulder Dam and what's Hoover Dam? And is, is, where, if this is Boulder Dam, where's Hoover Dam? So a lot of confusion. And finally, Mr. Mr. Romano was driven to, to write his letter to the Las Vegas Review-Journal in which he said, which he proposed a new name for the dam. He said, let's just call it, who gives a damn? <laughs> and let's hear no more about it. So Mr. Romano unwittingly gave me the theme for this talk tonight, uh, and it's, why should we give a damn about Hoover Dam? And as I, as I hope uh, I'm going to uh, persuade you, there are lots of reasons. Now, I already alluded a little bit to, to the dam's stunning beauty, a machine-age beauty, the simplicity of its architectural lines, which managed to project elegance and power at the same time. But there's so much more to it than that. There's the way it stands for the golden age of American civil, engin civil engineering. Indeed, the economist Alexander Field has written that the 1930s, that decade of crushing depression, was also the most technologically progressive decade of the 20th century, providing the basis for much of the explosive productivity growth that we got in the 50s and the 60s. In addition to Hoover Dam, the 30s gave us the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge. In New York, the Lincoln Tunnel and the Holland Tunnel and the Triborough Bridge. And back here in California, the Pasadena Freeway. All very important and indeed groundbreaking additions to the national infrastructure with their roots in local or, or regional requirements, just like Hoover, Hoover Dam. And they all required a massive federal investment. This was an approach initiated with Hoover Dam, and I think you can get a sense of how dramatic a departure that was from tradition if you understand that prior to 1930, the average annual federal government budget for public works was $150 million. The Hoover Dam project, if you count the canals, aqueducts, the power plant, and the other so-called appurtenant works, was going to come to $165 million all by itself. So this was something very new in terms of the scale of federal spending, and here at least we should tip the hat to Herbert Hoover, who showed the way. Now, that was also true of the dam in terms of its role as an answer to unemployment. Once again, you have to understand that until the 1930s, unemployment had been regarded as a problem for municipalities and state governments to solve, not the federal government. In the 1920s, 15 states had enacted unemployment programs of one sort or another, and they fell into certain categories. There were some states that followed a model in which employers would have to start their own unemployment funds, and others set up state funds, and they taxed employers uh, to finance those. But by 1930, they all had something in common, and that was that they were seriously financially strapped. And they were appealing to the Hoover White House for help. 
Now, Hoover, as president, had two ideas, two fixed ideas on how to address unemployment. One was to jawbone major industries and uh, leading executives into holding the line on wages and employment. So the country was treated to the spectacle of executive after executive trooping into the White House, meeting with, with the president, and then coming out to face the cameras and microphones and assuring everyone that, he, that, that they'd maintain the workforce and wages in their companies. And then a few months later, when nobody was paying attention, they'd lay people off and cut wages. Hoover's second idea was to step up government construction. So the call went out for what we today think of as shovel-ready projects. But the problem was, of course, that the federal construction budget had been so meager that there weren't a lot of projects. In fact, there was really only one project ready to go. Uh, it was well along in its design. It had been approved by Congress and signed into law by Calvin Coolidge and that was the dam on the Colorado. So thanks again to Herbert Hoover, who finally actually got it launched. Over the next five years, more than 10,000 men would be put to work in the Colorado Gorge, getting a desperately needed federal paycheck, starting at about $4 a day, and going up to, uh, to the best paid workers on the site who would get $6 a day. All of this for some of the most hellishly difficult and dangerous work in creation. Now, there's one more aspect of Hoover Dam and its impact on the West and the nation that I want to cover tonight because it's especially relevant to how we're living today. And that's the lesson it teaches us about how we use our natural resources. In this case, the most precious resource of all, which is water. And here, as I think you'll see, the impact of Hoover Dam is an equivocal one. The way I put it in my book is that Hoover Dam built the West, but it also confined the West in a straitjacket. And we're living in that straitjacket, all of us, today still. But let's begin at the beginning, and I, I want to give a sort of quick 10 or 15 minute chronological gallop through the history of this great work so we can see how all these threads have become intertwined. The first important fact to know is that Hoover Dam was originally conceived to address a local emergency in Southern California. And this was the Great Flood of 1905, which inundated the Imperial Valley, then already producing $2 billion a year in fruits and vegetables, and created the Salton Sea as we know it today. The Imperial Valley had been developed out of what had previously been known as the Colorado Desert or in some cases as, as the Salton Sink. And the developers knew that all that was needed to turn that desert into a Garden of Eden was water for irrigation. So they built a 50-mile canal from the river and they renamed the desert Imperial to attract settlers. The principle was that it would be very hard to attract people from all over the country to raise crops in some place called the Colorado Desert or, or the Salton Sink but that if you rename it, they will come. And they were right. So the developers were great marketers, but as canal builders, they were a pretty sorry bunch. They were incompetent and rather crooked, and they cut a lot of engineering corners. So during the flood season of 1905, the river, which was all, always a, a willful and quite violent river, burst its banks, destroyed the canal, and inundated this beautiful valley 
west almost all the way to the city line of San Diego, uh, destroying Calexico and Mexicali on the way. The river stopped flowing to the Gulf of California uh, and took a, a sharp turn west or to the right and turned the desert depression known as the Salton Sink into the Salton Sea. Putting the river back into its natural path took two years and $3 million, a job performed by the Southern Pacific Railroad on the express orders of President Theodore Roosevelt, who promised the SP that as soon as he had a chance, he would make sure that Congress repaid them, uh, a debt that has never actually been paid. In any event, after the job was done, Roosevelt sent a landmark message to Congress informing the lawmakers that the Colorado had to be tamed and had to be developed for the good of the country, and the only entity big enough, rich enough, and reliable enough to do the job was the federal government. For all intents and purposes, this was the start of the federal reclamation program, and Roosevelt's speech, or his message to Congress, closes the first chapter of the dam's history. The next chapter, in which the dam project had to prevail over its political opponents, lasted more than 20 years. There were two major centers of opposition. One, I'm proud or sorry to say, depends on what your perspective is, was the Los Angeles Times. Uh, thanks to its proprietors, General Harrison Gray Otis and his son-in-law, Harry Chandler. Otis and Chandler opposed building the dam because once it went up, they knew, it would shut off irrigation water to 800,000 acres of irrigated land that they owned just south of the border in Baja, California, and Sonoma. So for two decades, the LA Times vehemently editorialized against the dam project and attacked and ridiculed its supporters in print at almost every opportunity. The other opponent was the private utility industry, known then as the Power Trust. Now the Power Trust was an enormously powerful industry in its day, and it was desperate to protect its competitive position. The greatest threat the utilities saw on the horizon was the public power movement, especially after 1924 when the city of Los Angeles condemned and seized Edison Company's electric grid inside the city limits, an act that created what we know today as the Department of Water and Power, the largest municipal utility in the country. The last thing the Power Trust wanted was for a huge hydroelectric generating station to go up on the Colorado River and to be built by the taxpayers. They knew the dam would set a benchmark price against which their own rates would be measured and that their decades of profiteering from residential customers and giving breaks to their friends in industry would very likely come to an end. So they spent millions of dollars to kill the dam. They bribed congressmen. They hired lobbyists by the carload. They paid college professors to rewrite history textbooks to promote the role of private power in the building of America. And they secretly sponsored municipal ordinances to kill public power programs. Now, this should sound eerily familiar to you tonight because <laughs> on this very day, many of you, I hope all of you, went to the polls where you had an opportunity to vote on Proposition 16, uh, which uh, 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 I'll go out on a limb and say the infamous initiative put up by Pacific Gas and Electric 
financed 100% by that private utility uh, to the tune of millions upon millions of dollars to kill public power. So what we know is some things never change. As it turned out, however, in the 1920s at least, the power trust outsmarted itself. Because just as the Boulder Canyon project was coming up for a vote in Congress, the trust's underhanded campaign got exposed by the Federal Trade Commission. This was a bit of a surprise because the FTC was known then as the weakest need uh, regulatory agency in Washington, but on this occasion they got some spine. There were hearings, documents leaked to the news media, evidence of bribery and worse aired in public for weeks and weeks and weeks, and suddenly for a congressman or a senator to go on record against the Boulder Canyon project suddenly raised questions about whether he was actually on the utilities payroll. So all these congressmen who had fought the dam were now standing up to be counted. Uh, senator Hiram Johnson, California's uh, great progressive Republican senator and a revered figure uh, in our history, stood on the Senate floor and said, you need to stand up and be counted. You need to show that you're not in the pocket of the utility companies. And we saw the balance in Congress swing in the dam's favor. And then something even more unexpected occurred. The LA Times, which had been fighting this project for the better part of a decade, suddenly did a U-turn and came out in favor. Now, what could explain this about face? Well, there are two explanations. One is that the Chandler and Otis interests were bailing out of Mexico. After doing business for years with the very friendly Diaz government, they were now dealing with a new government south of the border that was promising to expropriate the gringos' lands. So they began to sell out. Now, they didn't get entirely out in time. They did lose a lot to expropriation, but they got paid back many, many years later. But it was clear even then that, it was, that they had no future in Mexico, that their future was in California. And around the same time as it happens, William Mulholland got Harry Chandler's ear. Now, I haven't talked yet about Mulholland and his role in building Hoover Dam, so I'm going to digress just for a moment to give you some of the background. I think most of you in this audience are pretty familiar with Mulholland in general, Mulholland Drive, you know about, and the building of the LA Aqueduct and the stealing of the Owens Valley water, uh, which are, of course, uh, founding legends of the city of Los Angeles. And of course, uh, many of you know Chinatown, which in many ways is the story of William Mulholland set down on film. Mulholland had gotten involved in the Boulder Canyon project at a very important moment. In 1926, Congress was debating the project and it was trying to figure out how to find the money to build this dam. It figured the money eventually would have to come from selling hydroelectricity, but it wasn't sure where it would find a market for the millions of horsepower that the dam was going to generate. Los Angeles was the obvious choice, but it was some 300 miles away, then just at the edge of the technology of electrical distribution, and in any case, no one could be sure that it would need all that power. It was just not of the size that seemed to, to suggest that it was a market. But one day, in the midst of this debate, Mulholland shows up in Washington, and he takes the stand in front of a congressional committee, and he says, and these are his exact words, gentlemen, I'm going to inject a new element into your discussion. He told them that LA was suffering from a devastating drought, and that it desperately needed all the water it could import from the Colorado River. 
And to get it, it would build its own aqueduct from the river all the way to the city. And furthermore, because transporting the water meant pumping it over a mountain range, Mulholland said, gentlemen, we'll buy every kilowatt you can generate at that dam. And even if we don't need all that power to pump the water, we'll buy it anyway. Because we can use the excess to attract new factories and new residents and all the, all the people and business that we need to grow into the great city that we see as our destiny. So stop worrying about whether you can sell the electricity, because you can sell it to us, and go build that dam. And then he went to see Harry Chandler. And he told Chandler, in essence, to knock it off. He reminded him that his family's future was now tied up inextricably with the growth of Southern California, with the annexation of new lands from the sea all the way to the San Fernando Valley. More people, more business, more readers for his newspaper, more advertisers for his newspaper, more demand for housing uh, on all the real estate that Chandler was, was uh, assembling. And if Chandler played his cards right, Los Angeles would make him one of the richest men in the world, as it did. But for that to happen, they needed the dam. So from that moment on, the biggest booster of the Boulder Canyon project was the Los Angeles Times. So in 1928, with the LA Times behind it and the Power Trust emasculated, Congress passed the Boulder Canyon Project Act and President Calvin Coolidge signed it just before Christmas in 1928. And that brought the second chapter in the story of Hoover Dam to a close, which brings us back to Herbert Hoover. Now in 1930, as I mentioned, one of Hoover's chief remedies for unemployment was public works. So in mid-1930, he sent out the order, get this dam started. This chapter lasted five years, during which Black Canyon rang with the sound of jackhammers and railroad cars and trucks and dynamite blasts, 24 hours a day, almost nonstop, falling silent on only two days every year. The two holidays in the Boulder Canyon project calendar were the 4th of July and Christmas Day. What we got was a triumph of good old American technology and creative civil engineering. Roughly twice the height of any dam ever built up to that point, requiring more concrete than had gone into all the concrete dams the US government had built up to that time. Located in one of the most remote and inhospitable places on earth, the dam was literally invented as it rose from the bedrock. New equipment had to be invented in the canyon New construction techniques had to be developed. New ways of excavating tunnels through solid rock and new ways of draining water from the riverbed so men could work in safety and dryly. New formulations of concrete had to be devised because mass concrete had never been subjected to the stresses and strains that this dam would undergo. And a new technique of cooling the concrete, which emits heat as it cures, had to be developed because otherwise that dam would still be cooling today and for another 100 years from now, a process that would create cracks all throughout the structure and, and weaken it and eventually possibly destroy it. And I write about all that in my book, so I don't want to go into too much detail. Now, to learn all this new chemistry, the government established the first national laboratories in our history. And to test the design, the government built an entire dam in a California river valley, built it to destroy it, to see how the real thing would respond under the pressure 
of a trillion gallons of water in the reservoir that would be named Lake Mead. The government awarded the construction contract to a consortium of builders who became nationally famous tycoons by building this dam. Among them, heretofore little-known men named Henry Kaiser and Warren Bechtel. The builders constructed their own hospital in Boulder City, which was the work camp that was built by the government for the workers and their families. They constructed their own hospital and they charged the workers a few dollars a month for medical care, a system that many years later became familiar to us all as Kaiser Permanente. Now this chapter of the dam's history brings us to September 30th, 1935, 75 years ago, when Franklin Roosevelt personally came out to the canyon, propped himself up on a makeshift lectern under 120 degree heat at a point that's now occupied by a big copper-colored visitor center that many of you may have seen. And before 10,000 spectators and 20 million listeners on a nationwide radio hookup, he dedicated the dam, conceived, approved, and launched by his Republican predecessors he dedicated it in the name of the New Deal. <laughs> well, he was a politician. So now we come to the latest chapter of the dam's history, the one that's still going on today. And it brings us to the most important aspects of Hoover Dam, those aspects that helped make the American century. Let's recall again the America of 1930, the America of that moment when Ray Wilbur appeared at the groundbreaking ceremony to launch the biggest government construction project up to that time anywhere in the continental United States. It was a nation facing the worst economic crisis of its history, one so all-encompassing that all those bankers and industrialists who came to see Hoover in the White House had to tell him that they didn't have an answer. With every month that passed, we seemed to sink deeper into poverty and hopelessness. And then out of the harsh western desert, a dam rose. Certainly it would be an exaggeration to say that Hoover Dam restored America's confidence in itself. But it's no exaggeration to say that the dam became the tangible, physical symbol of America's ability to bring itself out of crisis. While it was still going up, hundreds of thousands of people came every year to watch it go up. Boy Scout troops and Rotary Clubs made pilgrimages to the construction site. Delegations of engineers from Europe, from Russia, Japan, all came to see the work. And politicians from all over the country motored up to the river, to the dam site, to try to absorb some of its reflected glory. As the largest federal project of its kind, Hoover Dam inaugurated an age of great national undertakings. The United States embarked on a campaign to place more of its rivers and streams under human domination. Within a year of Roosevelt's address at the river, three more dams, Bonneville, Grand Coulee, and Shasta, would be under construction, all ranking with Hoover Dam as among the biggest in the world. The Tennessee Valley Authority, born in the 100 days at the beginning of the New Deal, would eventually encompass 29 hydroelectric dams. Seven more dams rose on the Colorado itself, exploiting the river so thoroughly that its once mighty flow into the Gulf of California has been reduced today to a brackish stream of runoff from Mexican farms. The power of America's concerted will and intellectual resources 
demonstrated so unmistakably by Hoover Dam, would continue to reveal itself over the succeeding years, in times of acute crisis, as after Pearl Harbor, at D-Day, and in the Manhattan Project, and in times of more tranquil aspiration, as during the 50s and 60s, which bequeathed us the interstate highway system and man's landing on the moon. The pattern of federal money, federal management, and private enterprise that built Hoover Dam would be repeated over and over again in the decades to come. And it continues to be repeated today. Usually it works, though not always, but we do need to understand that what we see taking place, say, in the Gulf of Mexico, with the government trying today to exert its authority over the deployment of billions of dollars of privately owned technology and material, that's a tradition that began with Hoover Dam, and we've stuck with it because usually it's efficient and effective. Sometimes conditions on the ground may overmatch men and machines, but only temporarily. Now, Franklin Roosevelt himself instinctively grasped the totemic power of what he called the greatest dam in the world. He foretold in his opening words on that dedication day the spell it would cast on every visitor. And I quote him, this morning I came, I saw, and I was conquered, as everyone would be who sees for the first time this great feat of mankind. Hundreds of thousands of visitors had preceded him, peering over the canyon rim during the construction phase at the ant-like workers 700 feet below. Afterwards, a million tourists a year would heed Roosevelt's call, quote, to come to Boulder Dam and see it with your own eyes. The dam became part of our shared culture. Movie companies set their dramas against the backdrop of dynamited cliff sides and poured concrete. Directors from Alfred Hitchcock in Saboteur to Michael Bay in Transformers have used it for plot points. Advertisers pose their cars next to its elegant lines. Poets sing, still today, of its flawless beauty. To the leftist English novelist and playwright J.B. Priestley, the dam heralded the advent of the new socialist man. Quote, this is a first glimpse of what chemistry and mathematics and engineering and large-scale organization can accomplish when collective planning unites and inspires them. You might be tempted to call it a work of art, as if something that began with civil engineering ended somewhat in the neighborhood of Beethoven's Ninth. Had the dam never been built, the West would look very different today. The growth of the urban areas most dependent on the river for water and power, Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, Denver, Salt Lake, would have been stunted. The largest city on the West Coast today might well be San Francisco or Seattle, both of which get their water and power from other sources. But it was built. The transformation of America that took place during the post-World War II period really began a decade earlier with the completion of Hoover Dam. The story of America in the last half of the 20th century is the story not of the post-war, but the post-dam era. But that's only half the legacy of Hoover Dam, the positive half, the uplifting half. There's also a darker element, a warning and a lesson. Those of you who've been out to see the dam in the last few years have undoubtedly noticed the bathtub ring around Lake Mead. 
that wide mark that's now about 100 feet wide that signifies how far below the reservoir's usual level the water has fallen. That's a symbol, too. It's a symbol of how we sometimes allow technology to promise us too much, how we sometimes forget that everything has its limits, and that Hoover Dam's promise, like all promises, is equivocal. As I already mentioned, Hoover Dam built the West, yet also confined it in a straitjacket. Let me explain what I mean by that. The governing assumption that allowed Hoover Dam to be built was that the Colorado River would yield more than enough water to fulfill every demand that could be placed on it by the people of the seven states of the Colorado Basin. But there isn't enough water in the Colorado, and there never was. Some people knew it, chief among them the great Western explorer John Wesley Powell, who at an irrigation congress all the way back in 1893 announced, I tell you, gentlemen, you are piling up a heritage of conflict and litigation over water rights, for there is not sufficient water to supply the land. And he was absolutely right. It was thought that Hoover Dam would put an end to 50 years of conflict over the waters of the Colorado. It has not. We still think it will do so. Only a few years ago in 2003, then Interior Secretary Gail Norton came out to the dam to sign 24 agreements transferring water rights among various claimants, Indian tribes, irrigation districts, western cities, the government of Mexico. And she proclaimed, as she put her, her signature to these agreements, conflict on the river is now stilled. Well, fat chance. Conflict on the river will never be stilled because there's more demand for the water than there is water. Since 1930, the population of the seven states of the Colorado Basin has grown by 45 million people. Much of this is growth that was fueled by the promise of the dam, enabled by what was thought to be its unlimited supply of that precious resource. The promise of, an abund of abundant water is what took the brakes off the growth of Los Angeles, San Diego, Las Vegas, and many other cities of the West. It's what allowed farmers to complacently plant the most water-thirsty crops, allowed fishermen to assume that they would fish forever amid unlimited abundance. It's what gives us the idea that we can water our lawns every day without bothering to think about waste and runoff. Well, now we're in the era of limits. In the Central Valley, farmers march in protest demanding that more dams be built to provide more water for irrigation as if you can just create water where there isn't any. Efforts to discharge water from reservoirs to preserve habitats for fish and to save the salt and sea are ridiculed by television anchormen on some cable networks, <laughs> which will go unnamed. Private companies are moving into the water business, figuring that where there's scarcity, there are profits. And yes, much of the difficulty we're facing is the result of a long drought, but we would have had to face it one way or the other because there's no soft landing from the journey we've been on. So here's the bottom line. Yes, Hoover Dam made the West and it made America. It made the world we live in, but we're still learning how to live in that world. And I suspect we'll be learning it for a long, long time. And with that, I'll close. Thank you.
I was wondering if it's possible for you to uh, divide up the responsibility for the creation of the dam between the government, the Bureau of Reclamation, and other governmental entities, and the six companies. The responsibility for building the dam, uh, I mean, you're, you're really uh, asking about sort of a bureaucratic uh, uh, division. Um, uh, the government, uh, uh, in general, was responsible. Congress uh, passed the Boulder Canyon Act, which enabled the dam to be built. Calvin Coolidge signed it into law. Uh, the job of supervising the work was given to the Bureau of Reclamation, which was the dam building arm of the Department of the Interior. Uh, and then the Bureau of Reclamation put the project out for bids. Uh, they did something novel for the, for the time, which is they put the entire project out for a single bid instead of dividing it up into jobs and bidding each job separately. And then they left it to the, to the winner of the bid to, uh, to be the general contractor and subcontract. And the winner of that bid, as you mentioned, was six companies. A consortium of six was actually started as eight companies. Um, that included uh, the Bechtel Company, uh, Kaiser's Company, uh, Morrison Knudsen, uh, and uh, uh, three or four others. Uh, and, then, and it was six companies that had the responsibility on the ground to, uh, uh, to deploy the men, uh, to handle the engineering. Uh, most of the raw materials that went into the dam were provided by the government. Uh, that's most of the permanent raw materials, including the concrete. So that's pretty much how it, the job was divided up. My name is Michael Liu. So I live in Los Angeles. And uh, so what percentage of water um, going into Los Angeles comes, comes from the Hoover Dam, Colorado River right now? Well, it varies depending on which water district uh, or water agency you get your water from, uh, whether it's the DWP or the Metropolitan Water District or one of the other municipal uh, districts. But overall, it's probably about uh, 40%. My name is Claudine. Could you tell us a little bit more about the workers and the situation of their living conditions and uh, how that developed during the construction of the dam? One of the aspects of, of the construction that I didn't go too deeply into in this talk but uh, is uh, covered uh, in great detail in my book is that when Hoover ordered the work to begin, he was actually accelerating a project that wasn't really scheduled to start for another year or two. Uh, now, uh, when, you're, when you're building a, a project like a dam in, a, in an uninviting environment like the desert, um, a lot of dams are built in, in, you know, in, in mountain passes, uh, you know, in, uh, in snowbound uh, places. The first thing you do is you build the work camp. You build a place for the workers to live so that they can live in comfort and safety and then go do their jobs. Uh, Hoover accelerated uh, the dam project uh, so much that the dam work actually started before there was a work camp. Now, the work camp was planned. It, it became Boulder City, which uh, if you've been to the dam, you've probably driven through it. It's sort of a nice um, uh, Midwestern-style uh, American town. It's now a suburb of Las Vegas. Um, but it was built as the work camp. But it couldn't be built for a year after the work actually started in the gorge. And in that first year, the conditions were especially harsh. In fact, uh, something in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 men, at least that's the best estimate we have, maybe many more, died of heat prostration in the canyon in that first killing summer of 1931. And that's because 
they were not only working in a canyon that, that uh, in the summer is like a furnace, concentrating the heat from the sun, uh, hot winds coming down, but they also had to live in that canyon. So they got, their bodies got no respite from this work. Uh, and, a, and a lot of these men died. A lot of them were, were crippled for life. Um, so in that first summer, the conditions were, were horrible. And in fact, they were so bad that you saw something that was very odd uh, in that era. You saw a strike. Uh, the entire workforce went on strike. It was fomented somewhat by the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies, but the real grievances uh, about the way they were treated. Now, after that first year, things got a lot better. Boulder City was built. Um, the, the, the workmen had an opportunity to rent houses from six companies, which overcharged them. Uh, the engineers were renting houses from the government, all in Boulder City. Uh, so things improved. But there were other occasions in which uh, that, the haste of the job, uh, the speed of the job, conditions including uh, very controversial use of gasoline-powered trucks, dump trucks, and, and shovels in the tunnels um, that were diverting the Colorado caused uh, uh, huge problems. Uh, men died from carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, the contractors uh, would ship uh, these, these, uh, these sick men out. They'd ship them to hospitals in Las Vegas where they would be diagnosed with pneumonia. So in the records of the dam, you see uh, scores and scores of men uh, listed as uh, uh, having died of natural causes, pneumonia, when in fact they'd been gassed, uh, gassed to death. So, um, uh, so the conditions were bad. Uh, there were studies at the time that said that the safety record on this project was much worse than any other uh, construction project of its type anywhere in the country. The relationship between this project and the 1902 Reclamation Act, Newlands Reclamation Act, please. Mm -hmm. The 1902 Reclamation Act was the act that created the, what was then the Reclamation Service, and it did start uh, uh, an era of irrigation dam building uh, around the West. Uh, Hoover Dam became the sine qua non of, of that project. It became the symbol. Um, when Roosevelt uh, went to Congress in 1907, five years later, and said, we want, to, we want to develop the Colorado. Uh, he knew that there was a basis for it, as you said, the 1902 Newlands Act, but it was, it was Roosevelt's determination and the idea that, that a river like the Colorado, this willful, really violent river, could be brought under control, that really made a difference, that, that raised the reclamation um, program to a, to a whole new level. Hello, my name is Brad McNeil, and um, in hearing this story, it, one area that seemed to have really gotten screwed was Mexico and the northern Mexico territory. And I was wondering if you'd comment on, um, you know, how that affected international relationships and what the situation is now as far as, I mean, now that the, there is less and less water coming from the Colorado River, um, how is it going to be divided between Los Angeles, San Diego, Las Vegas, and then looking at Mexico? When uh, the seven states came together uh, to negotiate the seven-state compact that was necessary before the dam could be built, this was the negotiations uh, uh, that brought Herbert Hoover uh, a role um, on the river for the first time. Uh, uh, the seven states of the basin needed to negotiate a legal settlement so that they could apportion the water that was going to be collected by this great dam. And Hoover, who was then Commerce Secretary, was appointed by... President Warren Harding to function uh, sort of as adult supervision. 
for these negotiations. Um, the, one, the one aspect of this that, that at the time didn't require discussion was the Mexican claim uh, on the river now. We also have other claims, uh, Indian tribes and what have you. But there was that, not then a treaty between the United States and Mexico for the apportionment of the river, and, and one didn't get written until sometime in the 1940s. So um, the states were basically enabled to divide up the river without worrying about what the Mexican claim would be. In fact, as I mentioned, uh, the dam was going to dry up irrigation to a lot of Mexican lands. Now, uh, since then, we did sign a treaty with Mexico. Mexico does have a claim on the river, and it's been uh, the focus of a lot of uh, uh, acrimony and controversy over the years because as um, the, uh, the Reclamation Bureau uh, takes steps to, uh, to conserve more water from the Colorado, less is left to Mexican farms. Um, Mexican farms now get what's run off from, say, the Imperial Valley. It's very low quality water, and the Mexican government is constantly complaining about that. Now, they haven't been able to make their complaints stick, but this is certainly uh, an issue that, that's always on uh, you know, the front burner or the back burner to be addressed. It was part of those agreements that Gail Norton signed, uh, though certainly not a satisfactory end from the Mexican standpoint. Now that we're lining uh, the All-American Canal, which would keep water from seeping uh, out of the canal and would go to Mexico, the Mexicans are complaining again that they're being shortchanged. So it's uh, constant controversy. It's a cause of political uh, problems, um, and it has been for years. Can I do a two-part? First of all, I was just wondering what sparked your interest in this particular project. And number two, um, your talk seems to have implications somehow for what's going on today. I mean, do you think that there's something that we, we keep hearing about all these shovel-ready projects that never seem to be getting started? So my name is Bonnie Goldenberg. What spurred my, uh, my interest was, uh, uh, first, uh, I needed a subject for a new book. Um, <laughs> Um, my previous uh, 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 historical uh, book uh, was one in which all of the um, all of the players were still alive while I was writing it, uh, and I had interviewed two or three hundred of them, and they were looking over my shoulder, so to speak, as I wrote it. Um, so I thought, if I was going to do a book like that again, uh, I would prefer to have one to write one in which I, I was sure to get the last word. Um, now, it also happens that at the time I was looking for a project, I was writing a lot about water policy for the LA Times. I was, I was very interested in it. And at one point, I remember talking to the general manager of the Metropolitan Water District, who explained that uh, the MWD got a lot of water from the Colorado, and it liked getting that water because it was almost free. And when I said, well, why is it free to the Met? He said, well, we build Hoover Dam. Now, he wasn't exactly right, uh, but he was alluding to that moment when Mulholland went out and said, we'll buy all the water. Uh, I'm sorry, all the electricity. Uh, so in a, in a real sense, Southern California did build the dam. But in any event, it, it made me think that there was a story to be told here, a story of, of local and regional interest and also of national interest. And that um, uh, often when I start a project, I start it because I get interested in a subject and can't find enough on the bookshelves to satisfy my curiosity. So I have to go do the research myself. Um, now, in terms of your second question um, and the issue of shovel-ready projects and the stimulus plan, uh, 
I'm not sure I'd agree that a lot of these projects haven't gotten started. Um, uh, projects on the scale we're talking about do take a long time to, to get ready. Uh, I mean, shovel ready, uh, you know, nothing's ever ready to start right away. Um, uh, during the New Deal, uh, public works were put in the hands of Harold Ickes, who was so cautious uh, and so uh, intent on making sure there'd be no dishonesty that, that things move very slowly. So they will, but, but, but uh, one of the points I think we should keep in mind is that the, the, the whole stimulus project, this idea that, uh, that we're gonna do a lot through public works, that we're gonna take this opportunity, the opportunity of a crisis to, to, to uh, build and repair infrastructure that's been shortchanged for 10 or 20 years. And we're gonna, we're gonna use that opportunity to put people to work uh, to get money out into the economy, uh, you know, to, to prime the economy and jumpstart. This is a model that dates back to Hoover Dam. And I, I think it's a good model. And, and I think when the stimulus program was being conceived, this was the model they were looking at. Thank you for your talk tonight. Very enlightening, as is your column in the paper. Thank you. Uh, my name is Bud Millard, and uh, I remember seeing week after week newsreels uh, in 1930. I was 10 years old at the time. And I just wonder if, uh, with all the filming that's been done, was there any completed film on the construction of the dam, and is it available? Uh, yes, there is a completed film. Uh, a little bit of background. Uh, the, uh, a lot of the stills, uh, some, some uh, renowned still photographs uh, uh, taken during the construction period and the, uh, the newsreels you've seen, uh, a lot of all that work was done by a man named Ben Glaha, who was uh, a reclamation draftsman who turned out to have uh, an unexpected skill uh, at photography. And, and ended up becoming the project's main photographer. In fact, he was so skilled that he won the admiration of people like Ansel Adams and Margaret Burke White, um, and uh, 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 renowned for, for his real artistic eye. Um, Glaha uh, set up a camera uh, on, on the cliffside and took um, uh, movie pictures. He took a frame a day, I think, uh, maybe a couple of frames a day and um, ended up editing it into a 45-minute film. You can find it on the internet, actually. Um, uh, it, it's available, it's, it's impressive. I think if you go to Hoover Dam and take the tour, they will show you uh, parts of that film. So it, it's widely available. I think you can even buy it um, um, on, on DVD. Thank you, Mr. Hiltzik. Thank you.